All right, what is going on? This is the QTR Podcast. How the hell is everybody? Happy to have you with me today. I have the wonderful Larry Lepard with me, who is going to come in and just generally make the room a little bit smarter, uh, as most of my guests do. There's not too many people that uh, that dumb my podcast down. That's my job, and my guests generally, they bring me back up a little bit. Then I do a couple solo episodes, kill some of your brain cells. Then I bring a smart person back on, which is what I'm doing today. Happy to have you here. This podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons, who are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out some of those people, like my kind friends over at Masterworks. I love these people. I have been using Masterworks since I interviewed their CEO, which was like two years ago. I've even like invested in one of their Banksies. Uh, basically, it's a great platform that is helping people invest in the art market where they normally wouldn't. So, you know, pieces of art are usually extremely expensive, at least the well-known ones. And uh, Masterworks makes it so that, you know, basically democratizes uh, investing in the art world. I mean, investing in art has been like a great hedge against inflation. I read that all the time. That's not part of the Masterworks script. I mean, I've been reading about that along with things like uh, rare scotches and whiskeys. Like those things have been like really good inflation hedges. Um, And Masterworks has done a great job turning around uh, several of their investments selling for you know, 30% gains. Uh, and really, I think in just the year that I've had an account or two years I've had the account, uh, you know, the Banksy that I have invested in has appreciated something like 33%. Um, and so <clears throat> Masterworks makes it easy to do that. You can skip, they have a waiting list to sign up, but you can skip that waiting list if you click the link in my podcast description and use the code QTR. I would definitely check it out. I think it's a really cool idea. And uh, one that I was happy to kind of get involved with, and I appreciate them supporting the podcast. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Market Rebellion, which of course is the wonderful uh, community that is headed by my friends John and Pete Najarian, uh, who you may know from CNBC, or earlier than that, the Pits in Chicago, or maybe earlier than that, the National Football League, a little uh, community college sports league called the NFL. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> The Nigerian brothers have brought together an incredible community, and they are providing analysis. They provide uh, wonderful takes on the market. You know, they're bringing decades of experience to the market. And I like John and Pete Nigerian because they're no bullshit people. I've met them in person several times. I'm not just endorsing them because they're supporting the podcast. I genuinely like these guys. I've spoken at their Market Rebellion conference before. Um, They're sharp. They understand the markets. Uh, They definitely understand the options market. Uh, And I think their service is wonderful. If you use the link in my podcast description, get in touch with somebody at Market Rebellion. Tell them QTR sent you. They will give you a free trial, whatever you want, to check things out. Um, tell them I sent you, they'll work with you. Same with Masterworks. You know, these guys are all good friends of mine, supporters of the podcast. Let them know that I sent you and they will make sure that you get taken care of. But check out my friends over at Market Rebellion. That link's in the podcast description too. This podcast also brought to you by my longtime exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion, the only place that I have bought gold or silver bullion over the last couple of years. JM Bullion has been in business for a decade. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They have great inventory, reasonable uh, markups to spot. Their premiums aren't insane. 
wonderful customer service. They've always turned around my orders quickly. Uh, their shipping is discreet. If you never ordered bullion through the mail before, you have any questions or you have questions about inventory or you don't want to look online, you can always reach out to the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. Tell her you are a QTR podcast listener. She will make sure that you get taken care of. That link is also in my podcast description. Check out JM Bullion. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Doomberg, one of my favorite Substacks experts in energy and commodities. The link to that is in my podcast description. My friend George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George has teamed up with Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh and Brent Johnson to help you preserve your wealth in a world of -of out-of-control central banks. George knows about how the inner bowels of the quantitative easing system works in a way that I don't. His site is a wonderful resource. It's cheap. They will hook you up with a free trial. Anything you want if you tell them QTR sent you. Check out my friend George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. I love their forums. I love Lynn Alden's premium content. I read it all the time. And I just generally like George Gammon, another honest guy to do business with that I can support with a clear conscience. This podcast finally also brought to you by my friend Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus who have a wonderful community called The Steam Room. And uh, these guys are also experts in unusual options activity. The Steam Room is a wonderful piece of software that they've been working on for over a decade. It is aesthetically beautiful. They have an incredible trading community. They're experts in tape reading and market psychology. Sang Lucci, also a hell of a guy, an honest guy. I got to tell you, you sign up for something like Market Rebellion, and then you sign up for something like The Steam Room, and you pretty much have the options world fucking locked down. I'm just going to say, I, if you had to come to me and ask for like the two absolute best OGs in the world of options, it would be those two. Market Rebellion and uh, Wall Street Jesus and Sang Lucci. Because they are fucking original gangsters in the options world. So check those services out if you are an active trader, if you're a day trader, especially if you're in the options world. Um, this podcast has a three-drink minimum. I am not an investment advisor. This is not investment advice. I hold no licenses, no registrations. Trade at your own risk. Don't do anything that I say, please. This is just open dialogue and discussion for the purposes of getting shit out there. This is not expert advice. I am not, this is not a solicitation to buy or sell any securities, etc., etc. Folks, do your own research and do it elsewhere. We got Larry Lapard here. All right. Happy to have Larry, whose bio I just had a second ago and then lost. Hold on, where the hell is it? Here he is. Larry manages the EMA Garb Fund, a Boston-based investment management firm. Their strategy is focused on providing monetary debasement insurance. He has 38 years experience and an MBA from a little community college up there near Boston called Harvard Business School. Not sure if you've ever heard of it. Uh, on Twitter, he is at Lawrence Lapard. His bio is in the podcast description. Consult uh, somebody else with any questions and consult your therapist with any emotional issues. Hello, Larry Lapard. How are you? Hey, Chris. I'm great. As I was saying in the warm up, um, you know, you've just been crushing it recently, and I, everything you write, I, I, w- I wish I'd written it myself. It's, uh, it's like you're my brother. <laughs> well, it's funny because we were both characterized this last week by two separate individuals. Uh, as oh. as basically being frauds, uh, the, mm. the two of us. And I'm not going to mention any names, but you know who right. who called yep. you out publicly on Twitter, and yep. uh, <clears throat> and maybe the person that called me out is uh, lesser known, but and he's actually a brilliant writer. Some guy on Substack, 
you know, wrote an article about perma bears and doomsday sayers and the, you know, the cult of fintwit doom and and all this other shit, basically alleging that, you know, first off that I'm an idiot, which is fine. You know, so <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> Second off that, you know, like, uh, oh, I'm self-deprecating, you know, to get out of, you know, not doing any work or not knowing anything. It's like, no, I was self-deprecating long before I was in finance, okay? Um, right. <clears throat> but also essentially saying that we, you know, that it's all a big, like, game, right? He's He says, look, you know, the, in terms of macro, betting for the end of the world is a stupid bet. Uh, because the world hasn't ended thus far. Um, and if the world does end, you know, we won't be around to reap the gains of our, um, of our financial prognostications, I guess. And basically saying that, you know, our content, my content is an amalgam of, uh, you know, armchair kind of Austrian economics where I get, you know, a lot of shit wrong and I just kind of talk shit, which is basically what I do. I'm okay with that. But the one thing that I take issue with and that I wanted to talk to you about was this idea that, like, we don't come by it honestly, you know, that we're trying to drum up uh, panic and fear in order to either, you know, get people to subscribe to my Substack or get people to invest in your fund. Um, This is something that Peter Schiff gets called out on all the time, right? Like, oh, well, you know, sure, your solution is gold. You run a gold fund. And it's just, it's very simple. You can either run a gold fund and then try to drum up panic to get people into your gold fund. Or you can truly believe that eventually we'll be back on some type of gold standard and want to invest in gold because of that. And I, I never understood people that can't see it that way, you know? So like, what's your take on all this? Well, I mean, am I a fraud? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, I mean, to, to question somebody's motives like that, I mean, it's I think it's projection on his part. Um, it probably tells me whoever it was that did it to you, you know, was projecting. And I know the guy who did it to me was projecting. I mean, uh, you know, I obviously am self-interested in seeing gold do better, no doubt. And, um, you know, full disclosure, right? And full disclosure on your on all your stuff as well. Um, having said that, you know, I, I'm an analyst. I've been an analyst for my entire career in the financial markets. And I call them as I see them, and I and I live with my mistakes, and I own it when I was wrong, and I have been wrong in the past, and as I know you have, and you admit it as well. And so, you know, my belief and strong belief, and people can make their own decision whether to follow me or believe in me, and, and as to why I'm doing what I'm doing, is that I'm trying to communicate a need for why the money is broken, and we need to fix the money if we want to fix society. That at the core of our problem it's the bad money that's created all the stuff we are looking at that's so terrible the wars the the corruption etc cetera, etc cetera. and so to me it's it's even more than what my fund does or whether people make money and, and god knows nobody needs to invest in me and, and anyone can invest any way they want as you always say at the lead off to these things this is not investment advice this is my opinion and my opinion is that the system is badly broken and that the reason the system is badly broken is because fiat has, has ruined price, you know, honest price discovery, and that as a result of that, we are all going to suffer. And you know, this person may be criticizing you, Chris, but frankly, your calls have been dead ass right for the last six months. I mean, you know, th- this person was probably also, uh, you know, a bond bull and a stock bull, and you know, those people have been getting eviscerated. I mean, gold is actually the best, absent some of the commodities and oil, gold is the best performing asset class year to date. 
you know, it's what is it down ten percent? Six. It was. It's between six and ten percent. It bounces around a lot. But the devil's advocate um, argument is that you know everything's going to revert, though, right? Everything will revert. The yep. market will wind up back at all time highs. Will eventually be proven, quote unquote, wrong. And mm. you know, people who are live by the adage of time in the market instead of timing the market uh, will be proven right. And and there's some, I don't know. There's some mix up that because I publish my thoughts relatively frequently to the, t mm. and because, you know, I have a Substack where people can pay to become a subscriber that, you know, what my interest is, is, uh, pretending as though I can call the market on a day-to-day -day basis and then, and then trying to sell that to people, um, as like some kind of guarantee, which I don't know. I, right. I don't, feel I, like I I don't do I've never, I've never thought that you've tried to do that. And I would just say, that you know anyone who thinks the market's going back to all-time highs and doesn't recognize what's occurred here, which is a bursting sovereign debt bubble, is you know just completely out of, out to lunch. And, and and frankly, in my opinion, I don't know who did it on your on your stuff. I have been following carefully because I've been traveling, but um, you know they're not worth your time. I just block them and move on. <laughs> you yeah, know, and I mean, what, I what's going to, on is so obvious. Here I to, actually to have anyone. to say, yeah. I'm sorry. Just the last thing I'm gonna no. say about this. I actually have to say is the yeah. guy. The guy's a great writer. I read the entire piece, and it's not just me that he writes about. He writes about Schiff, and he writes about, um, you know, a bunch of these guys on on FinTwit, uh, Mark Yusko, and a couple other people. And it's actually it's come after me, probably, right? Yeah, I didn't see you on there, but it was a it was like a very well written piece mm. to the point where I actually mm. almost tweeted it out and just said, you know, just hey, read this if you want like another perspective on uh, yeah. on what I do because I don't I don't care, you know, like and. Uh, uh, you know, I just, I don't know. I, f I find the whole thing befuddling when it comes down to the idea of suggesting, like, you can't be skeptical of these big macro issues and these big, really, like, global crosswinds, as, as Kenny Polcari called them uh, earlier this week, mm. that are... I think, you know, at least unprecedented since I've been following things, you can't call Absolutely. those things out. You can't try to be skeptical and prepare for like a worst case scenario without without being labeled somebody that is actively celebrating the end of the world and trying to scare people into following me on Twitter. Like, really? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's um, look, it, it's to me, it's just analysis. You know, it's not, it's, it, there's, take the emotion out of it. There's just analysis of what's happening. And, you know, the facts are, they, you know, they stand on their own. And um, the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, global sovereign debt bubble is unwinding and it's going to be extremely painful. And, you know, in particular, I think there are a lot of people on Twitter and in general who don't have the perspective of time in terms of age. I mean, I, you know, I'm 65 years old. I've been investing since 1982. Um, you know, if, if you got into this market in 2008 or later, you've never seen a bear market. You I mean you were you were solidly conditioned to do nothing but buy the dip. And um, how's that working out so far this year, right? And, and and my opinion is more to come. But you know, Larry, the people that say that buying the dip is you know still going to be a good strategy, basically, you know, our argument is you can buy the dip you know, all the way down, but they continue to say that, look, you know, we'll just keep buying until the market just eventually goes back up to all time highs. Right. Right. And, and look, that's a position they can take, but what if they're using the wrong model? 
I mean, if, if, if you know, let's say, let's say 1929 is a comparable situation, which I believe it is actually, um, you know, you could, you could have bought the dip all the way down to where you've lost 80%, almost 90, 89% of your money. And, and then you could have waited 35 years to get it back. Right. Um, and I don't think people are thinking in those terms. I mean, the last time we had the kind of crosswinds and global macro events occurring uh, that are occurring right now, and the last time we had a credit bubble that was this big was, was the 1929 example. And so, you know, we're down, I, the stock indices now, I don't know, what are they down, roughly 25% maybe off the top? And we've got a lot further to fall. Um, there's some great charts out there that show that we're still – on a on a market cap to GDP basis, we're still very close to the peak of 2000. Right. So this this market could easily, in my opinion, lose another 20 or 30 percent. Perhaps then it'll be a buy. I don't know, but to you know the notion right now that it's a buy, I, I'm I'm not there. I, I don't think it is. Yeah, and I agree with you. The market cap to GDP, you know, reversion to the mean, I think would be like between a 30 and 40 percent drop. Like a Schiller PE reversion to the mean would be about the same, and just an S and P uh, PE reversion to the mean in terms of what what the S&P's price to earnings ratio dropped to the average of all of its troughs during recessions uh, would be also around another 30 or 40 percent uh, from here. And I don't know if that's going to happen. All I know is if you're buying the dip now, you are somehow tasked with making the case that with rates where they are and with the Fed positioned where it is at least for the time being, and with inflation where it is now, that a Schiller PE of 25 is a bottom. Like, that's the argument you have to make. And I just don't know how you do that. I don't either. I mean, and and by the way, E is going to come down. You know, we were also at at peak margins at the top. And, you know, you got the rail workers strike and they get 30% price increase. I mean, you know, we've all seen the charts on labor costs. I mean, they are all going up substantially. And um, as a result, you know, e, these companies are going to get squeezed. E is coming down. So, you know, multiple contraction and, and shrinking E, it's a bad combination. Well, it's like we've lost total perspective that prior to COVID, I mean, it felt like the market was at a fever pitch prior oh, to COVID, indeed. right? And we're oh, barely indeed. we're yeah. barely back at those pre-COVID levels now. Like what happened from 2020 to 2022? Well, you had like a, you know, five sigma event where, you know, the Fed yeah. provided unlimited liquidity and basically unlimited confidence that they were going to be there for the market. The economy right. shut down. There was all this hot money going around. The market rallied to even more, you know, it's like the car was redlining before the fed <laughs> stepped in seriously yeah. at, in march yeah. 2020 and then the car slowed down a little bit and then it went back to redlining and then it hit the fucking nitrous boosters right so absolutely i think people's, yeah, no, I, I, people's yeah, perspective people's perspective is so skewed in in the sense that they think oh now we're finally you know we're getting to a point where valuations are reasonable it's like no we're not earnings are good like you said earnings are going to drop off the qe spigot has been turned off, and we're at the same valuations that we were when we thought we were at nosebleed valuations. Correct. And, you know, if you look at it on a chart, at a technical level, I mean, it really is a throwover. You can draw all the trend lines, and they were, you know, going up and, and, and on trend line, and then we just threw over. It was crazy. I mean, what happened in late, what happened post-QE, you know, post-COVID um, was just insane. 
It was absolutely insane. And, um, and you know, have we taken the froth out? Sure. I mean, the froth has really come out in, you know, yours and my favorite, you know, arc, right? I was just looking at the other day. It's down 76% from the peak. And by the way, it was a good leading indicator. It fell, you know, this market held up through 2021, the general stock market. But ARC really peaked, um, you know, in early, in late 2020, early 2021. And, um, you know, the, the speculative areas always get hit first, and then it moves through to everything else. And, and this reminds me, I mean, I, I was, you know, I had a seat at the table in 2008 and in 2000. It reminds me of the exact same thing, only bigger, honestly. Um, but in 2000, as an example, you know, the real high flyers, the, you know, the pets.com, the really stupid stuff, you know, kind of blew up early. And then eventually it came and got Cisco and everybody else. But, you know, you started with the super speculative stuff. And, of course, that's everything that Kathy Wood owned. Yeah. And to draw another analog there, I remember, obviously, a million times I've said, all right, well, you know, the very speculative call buying and Tesla played a huge role in not only yes. ARC going through the roof, but cementing her like kind of legacy as an asset manager just happened to be in the right place at the right time say with ross gerber you know like th th this company goes on this incredible gamma tear higher to a valuation that is in my opinion absolutely insane and should have never ever happened i don't know why it did that maybe in the annals of history years from now we'll we'll know but you know, it solidified these two as like, what, some kind of visionaries, you know, like, and then all of a sudden we woke up one day and Ross Gerber was on television every day. You know, the guy doesn't know real rates from nominal rates. He doesn't know an enterprise value from a market cap. I mean, this is like basic, basic shit. Like, right. you know, I know I'm well, not. What I, what, what I thought was so sad about it was I saw, you know, moms and pops getting sucked into it. And she was on CNBC every day. And you know, and, and it was it was really kind of a pump and dump because, you know, as you recall, her assets under management went up enormously. And so as she got more money, she had to put it into her existing names in order to, you know, to make the fund work, you know, on a go forward basis. And of course, eventually there were no more new money coming in and then there was no one to sell to. And it was just a, it was a classic case of, you know, um, you know, one one fund really driving a lot of those companies into into the stratosphere. Yeah, it's wild. They um, they continue to see inflows, though. I was just looking yesterday. Like their, really? their inflow numbers have been like astonishing over the last. Oh, like as the stock has, as the ETF has come down, like people are still because my my friend Phil Bach made a good point about this, which is that you know her fund is basically being seen as a vehicle for that type of speculation. So like mm -hmm. for better or for worse, it's well known. And if you want access to those types of companies for one reason or the other whether you want to get long them or whether you want to short the, you know what in my opinion is a collection of horrific overvalued companies uh, or mm. was horrifically overvalued uh, a year ago or two years ago that would be the way to do it and so by kind of solidifying that spot and solidifying that niche you know that makes her successful as a as an etf manager right. regardless of the performance and i think okay that makes a little bit of sense yeah, I get it. I mean, and look, don't get me wrong. I mean, right now, it's, we're as down on it as we are. I mean, there probably will be a face-ripping rally. I mean, the people who are buying it now, probably, it's, as a trade, it may not be crazy. I mean, it's been it's been destroyed. But as a long-term hold, I mean, if I, you and I have both looked at these companies, we've analyzed them, we've looked at their cash flows. I mean, a lot of them don't have cash flow. But, um, you know, we understand that fundamentally, you know, it's it's just not a good place to be. And 
And that goes to the bigger issue that I think you and I have discussed and you, you fully understand, which is, you know, we hit peak deflation in March of 2020, right? The 10-year traded at 45 basis points. And ever since then, it's been nothing but inflation. And, you know, I think the biggest missed call and the people that I really blame the most are these deflationistas who kind of think we're going back to 2%. We're just not, you know, um, we're, we're not. We are now in an inflationary environment. And that's that's what a lot of I think a lot of the investors today are missing is that this is not, you know, this is not a return to trend kind of situation, a buy the dip kind of situation. This is a new game. And the new game is going to favor people who are making bets on things that are likely to benefit from inflation. And it's going to not favor people who are making or playing the old game because the old game is over. Um, and, and so to me, that's the enormous mistake a lot of investors are making. I mean, and it reminds me, I got into the business in 82. It reminds me very much in 82, everyone thought, oh, you've got to be inflation heads because the 70s had been very inflationary. And so, you know, gold was a good thing to hold. Commodities were good things to hold. Stocks, nobody wanted stocks in 82. Of course, that was the stock market. You know, we'd had the death of equities magazine cover in 79, right? And that was, of course, when equities were about to take off on a 30-year tear. But, you know, and I was, I couldn't believe how cheap some stuff was. And I was buying. But, um, you know, we're, we're on the, ex the exact opposite of that right now. And I don't see anything that says that we're going to go back to the deflationary environment, other than the fact that, in general, you know, technology is a deflationary force in the world. But I think we've so underinvested in commodities for so long that we are about to have an enormous inflationary commodity boom here in the next 10 years. So you are predicting that commodities are, you know, that inflation is going to continue at the same rate of acceleration or, you know, maybe are, will, will that's, CPI, that's you know, like Jim Rickard says, next year CPI will be much lower because, you know, we're comparing it, it to be. this year's already inflated numbers. So what, I what do you completely forecast? agree? It, I, I agree with him on that. I mean, the zigzags are very hard to get and it could very much soften up. But I would, you know, go look at uh, Tavi's chart on inflation in the 70s, and it, it comes in waves, right? And, you know, it, it's very hard to know what next year will look like. It, to some degree, it'll be driven by what the Fed does. But, um, you know, because a piece of the inflation is just a psychology issue, as we all know. So, um, you know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bounce around. And I could, you know, could it come down from 8-ish to 4-ish? Oh, absolutely. Is it going to 2? I say no way. No way. The the supply chain problems, I mean, they're trying to solve it by tightening money, and it's really not, I mean, it was partly a loose money thing, but the bigger issue is the supply issue. You know, we, we underinvested in supply of all the things we need, and the COVID, you know, showed how weak those supply chains were, and, and so, you know, we're now trying to catch up, and, you know, you can't just turn on more oil. I mean, look at the Saudis. I mean, the Saudis are doing this partly out of, you know, real politic and, and wanting to side with, you know, with the other side. But I think they're also doing it. I just don't think they have the capacity necessarily to turn it on. I mean, we, you know, we need to make a lot more investments in energy or else, you know, the world is going to be a, a, a not so pleasant place with a lot of inflation, energy inflation. Well, let's play devil's advocate for on behalf of the people that think that we are. Uh, doomsday sayers and frauds and what ha <laughs> yeah, what have yeah. you. Let let's play devil's advocate on their behalf. What could the you know what does the global picture look like in terms of central banks and leaders coming together to create a you know a debt jubilee or a 
you know, a solution that kind of everybody agrees on to fix this problem and kind of make it go away without actually dealing with it? Boy, I, you know, it's a great question. Because that's, Chris, essentially, that's essentially what people would be arguing. If, if they say that, you know, Larry Lepard's full of shit, right? Because he's, he's touting gold and he just thinks, you know, the apocalypse is coming. You know, I guess for our predictions or for those predictions to come true, the financial world has to kind of unwind within the boundaries of some economic rules still, right? If you, right. If you play by the regular rules of economics – Things do have to unwind. Shit does have to get real. Sovereign debt does become a problem. But if you intervene, you know, that can be dealt with in, in other ways. And what is that best case that's, scenario? That's correct. Like? I mean, I, look, yeah, so so the scenario, you're, you're kind of painting a scenario where our stuff doesn't work. And I think that's entirely possible. I mean, the banks are trying to, the central banks and policymakers are trying to skate between massive inflation and massive deflation. And, you know, and they're kind of behind the puck. You know, they were they obviously missed the inflation called the transitory. You know, now they're oversteering in the other direction. Right. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to slam on the brakes and pull money out. But that's going to create its own set of problems. I mean, look, it is actually possible that we do have a deflationary outcome. I mean, it, it, it looks like the depression. You know, I mean, literally everything kind of shuts down. People start losing their jobs, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I happen to think that if we get into that kind of a development for very long they're going to go crazy and come back in printing money but it's entirely possible that at that point they've gone too far and it's too late and things really do kind of quote unquote start to unwind all the way through and so you do see lower inflation prints etc i mean and i can imagine a scenario where um they're printing like crazy and we still have deflation again i mean one of the problems chris and i talked about this in the presentation i gave at the denver gold show which is where i'm at and that presentation, by the way, is on my Twitter feed. Um, you know, one of the problems that you've got here is kind of, you know, we're in an airplane where the attitude indicator has failed. And, you know, we've got these enormous fugoid swings between massive inflation, massive deflation. It's very hard to know what's going to happen. I think you're familiar. Are you familiar with the Mermican chart on the no. movement of gold? Oh, it's on. It's in my presentation. It shows the movement, the monthly movement of the gold price during Weimar. And, you know, you get these wild swings. And I mean, I, in, in my presentation, again, referenced on Twitter, you know, I've, I mean, take a take a look at a six year lumber chart, you know, go to go to stockcharts.com and type in lumber. I mean, how does a builder plan in an environment where the money is so broken, the prices go up massively, go down massively, go up massively, go down massively? I mean, recall that six months ago, you know, there were bidding wars for houses, right? You know, right now, houses are sitting on the market and prices are being, you know, being dropped. I mean. And, th and that's a result of a broken system run by corrupt, broken central banks that don't know what they're doing and are continually making the wrong choices. So to, to try and predict what's going to happen, we can't. We really can't. And so I don't necessarily, I don't, you know, how is this doomsday thing going to play out? I have no idea. Um, but I do know that the system is quite broken. And we get evidence of that almost on a daily basis. I mean, the most recent thing that, you know, signals that to me, because, and I think it's an earthquake, I think it's an enormous deal, is what's going on in England, right? I mean, England is a G7 country. It looks like a developing nation. It looks like Venezuela. Break it down for I mean, people, break it down for people that don't know what's going on in England. Yeah, have to do it. Again, charts in my presentation. So, you know, go look at the 10-year um, British guilt, which is their 10-year bond. Or go look at the great uh, the British pound as measured against the dollar. 
If you do a chart of those two things, what you'll see is that the interest rates were going up pretty steady rate through the summer. And what you'll see is that the pound was going down. And this reflected the fact that Britain had, you know, cut their taxes and they were going to run bigger deficits and so forth. Okay. Then you go back to maybe a month or so ago, a month and a half ago or so, about a month ago. And you'll see that the lines really start to accelerate. I mean, the pound really falls quickly and interest rates really go up quickly. I mean, like 20%, you know, in, in a matter of weeks. And so the, so the, the BOE, the Bank of England, has to intervene and says, you know, we are going to do whatever it takes to buy gilts and to, and to support the pound, even if that means selling U.S. Treasuries, which, by the way, then pushes up the U.S. Treasury rate. Right. Okay? And, and that gets into the next part of the presentation, which is the debt doom loop, right? I mean, two years ago, we spent $340 million, billion a year on Treasury interest. In August, we spent $56 billion, multiplied times 12, that's 600 and something. Okay, and that's you know we haven't fully adjusted for these higher rates. And if you also look in the presentation, you'll see that all these maturities are short. So within three years, a lot of our debt rolls. And as a result of that, you know take four percent ten-year interest rates or four percent two-year interest rates. Two years a little higher now. Multiply times thirty-one, and you're at one point two trillion in interest costs. That's bigger than Social Security. I mean, we were at three hundred and fifty two years ago. We're at 1.2 trillion. I mean, that's that's a 900 billion dollar swing. What's the point? The point is that the U.S. federal deficit is going to blow out. Okay, fine. That you say, all right. Well, you know, we can control that. Well, no, you can't because you've got to issue bonds to support that deficit. Well, you've got to sell bonds into a bond market that's already selling off and rates are going higher. You see where I'm going here? It's a doom loop, right? You sell more bonds, rates go higher. Your interest rate get high, gets higher. Your cost is higher. Your deficits are bigger. You got to sell even more bonds. This is how emerging country currencies fail. And we haven't seen this at the sovereign level since the 1920s and 30s. And it's happening here right now. You can look at these markets. This is factual. This is not, you know, doomer, you know, it's, I'm not trying to sell gold. I'm just trying to tell you, look at the facts, just the facts, man. So. So what do you buy? <laughs> Who you know, knows? You, well it's just i mean how do you figure it out now you have yeah you I mean, have equities look, you have equities all right you have inflation at eight percent you have 31 right. trillion dollars in debt you have the country slipping into a recession right you right. got negative gdp prints you have bonds you know paying four percent now right mm. you have equities yeah, trading mean, at a at a 25 p.e you have commodities all over the place. You know, some yeah. commodities are, are up 25% this month. Some of them are down 25% this month. Commodities are just all over the place. You know, w where do you look? Yeah, I, it's it, it's a great question, Chris. And, and, and I you know I can't give advice. I don't know the, the answer. But I, I say, know, and this is not investment advice. Is there a case for yeah. buying bonds here at 4%? Yeah, it feels like there is. There might be for one or two year, right? I mean, I wouldn't buy a 30 year at 4%. No way. Right. I think the, the, the odds of a continual debasement, they're high, extremely yeah. high. But would I, you know, a two year for four percent? Yeah. May not be so bad if you're willing to earn your four percent for two years. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, they'll pay you back the principal. Now, I would argue, you know, <laughs> yes. I mean, I, 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 I think, well, the, well, they will in paper. I mean, what the, right. the issue is, what's that paper going to be worth? Right. right we all right. know that. So. So, you know, I mean, look, there's an argument for cash. I think there's an argument for gold coins. I think there's an argument for silver coins. I think there's an argument for Bitcoin. I know you and I differ on that a little bit. We can go there if you want. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I think there's an argument, you know, for stocks that are in commodity-related businesses that, 
you know, there actually are still some value stocks out there. I mean, I, I point particularly, and this is obviously self-interested, you know, some of the gold stocks. I have companies in my portfolio, very high quality companies that are trading at three to five times EBITDA and yielding 4%. Yeah. I mean, I, I view that as a pretty interesting place to be. Yeah, and, you know? and really, if that was a hot dog company, I would feel the same way about it. You know, it's just, right. it yeah, doesn't I mean, really forget, matter that it's gold. It just happens yeah, forget, to be gold. Yeah, it just happens. And, and they've been, honestly, they've been thrown out for dead. I mean, the, my entire sector has corrected 50% since, you know, Jay Powell decided he was Volcker, which to me is just an incredibly irresponsible and unreconcilable move because... Volcker was dealing with different conditions. He only had 30% debt to GDP. We've got 125% federal debt to GDP. Right. He's, you know, he's going to blow the thing up. I mean, and, and okay. I mean, that's a choice. You know, they can make that choice. The terrible thing and the thing that's so hard. I mean, Chris, I, I don't know. You know, I know you get angered by the whole system. I know I do too. I mean, remember two years ago in July of 2020, Volcker was, I mean, Volcker, yeah, that's a slip. Powell was saying, we're not even thinking about, thinking about raising rates. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, 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 and go listen to that speech. I mean, he's basically telling everybody, hey, guys, party on. It's all good. Right. We'll warn you. There'll be plenty of time. And that's, by the way, what drove that huge ramp in the 2021 stock market. Right? Right. And then, and then we listened know, to six months of them telling us inflation was transitory. Th then they at, lied about at, the transitory. Yeah, at the end of, yeah. I don't even think they were lying. I just think they didn't know. I, I, th they, I think whatever. They, yeah, I mean, it's lots of arguments both sides of that. But yeah, whatever. But then a year, so so they get all these poor retirees who you know can't get any interest income on their savings, right? They're getting one percent on their savings. And then, gosh, I got to go chase some stocks, right? Everybody in the pool. And then you know, a year and a half later, now or earlier this year bang, you know, fastest rate, you know, we're going to warn you a lot. Well, they didn't really warn us that much. And the fastest rate hike in history. And guess what? You know, your IRA is down 30, 40%. And it's, and by the way, it's going to get worse. And it hasn't even hit the markets yet. I don't think, I don't think, the yeah. three, I don't even think the 3% has hit the markets yet. I think that's correct. And so, but the point is, I mean, talk about irresponsible and here it is, you know, they're going to, you know, the boomers of which I'm one, you know, they're going to wipe us out for the third time. This is the third bubble in 22 years. I mean, in 2000, you know, the, the stock market went down 50%. In 2008, the stock market went down 50%. I'm pretty sure this one's going to go down 50% at least, perhaps more. And, you know, if you're if you're 60 or if you're if you're between 50 and 80, and I know people like this, I mean, my in-laws and others, and you have your money in the stock market, you know, a 50% hit really hurts, right? And, and yet they forced people to do it because they didn't give you any honest yield on your savings. I mean, it's just horrible. It's absolutely and horrible. Then, and then to complete... To complete the, yeah, I know where you're going. <laughs> to complete the, you know, uh, circle jerk, they just hand out a Nobel Prize to Ben Bernanke, which well, is just yeah, to, to, to cover their tracks. I thought you were going to go in a different place with to complete the circle jerk. The the guys who were insider trading, oh, you know, well, I stepped stepped aside and sold at the top. Well, right let me before, just say that right let, before they knew before they knew that they were about to change the policy. Let me just make <laughs> the point about Bernanke, okay? Okay. <laughs> you know, look, they give him a Nobel Prize in economics for his economic research. It's like, all right, sure. He did a lot of research, you know, after after he missed the subprime crisis happening, right? Like, he spent a lot of time fucking studying after the crisis, right? They're basically yeah, giving him— Yeah, I don't know, but maybe, they're, yeah. They're giving him the Nobel Prize— because of what happened after. And it's a question, you know, I wrote about this last week. It's a question of being proactive versus being reactive. Okay. Yes. Uh, somebody that was proactive 
would have seen the crisis brewing in advance, saw, you know, credit spreads blowing out or whatever, and would have been able to understand that that was happening and maybe preemptively do something to uh, to intervene if, if intervention was even necessary, right? Correct. What he did was he missed it, and then after it happened, you know, received high praise for basically implementing what is fair to call the easiest possible solution. I know it didn't seem easy at the time. There was a lot of panic. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of political jostling back and forth with TARP. Should we, can we do this amount? Can we do that amount? Do Republicans want it? Do Democrats want it? It seemed as though everything was, you know, on the brink. But they were always going to land at a solution like that because it's just too convenient. It's just too easy. And they just can't handle discomfort, panic, austerity, issues like that, um, really with any type of backbone. And so he, you know, with him, Paulson, the government, they implement TARP, right? They, you know, they bail out the banks to the tune of a half trillion dollars, Okay, while many millions of Americans still lost their homes, still lost their retirement savings, you know, the banks wind up with all this excess capital. The inequality gap winds up, you know, widening. The purchasing power of the dollar winds up falling a little bit. And then we kind of move forward in the direction of this is a solution that worked and, you know, can and will be implemented again in the future, which does several things right it it created mm-hmm. really the mess that we're in right now because Correct. we you know when the fed stepped in in march 2020 and basically decided to paper over the entire economy uh they thought that they were doing the right thing um Correct. and it created an immense amount of moral hazard that wasn't there prior to 2008 because you know they forced banks that didn't even need the capital to take the capital with tarp you know, there were, there were some banks, I forget which ones, but there were some banks that were well capitalized and weren't at risk. But they basically said, you know, just take this capital anyways, because we have to, you know, you know, this guy will buy that guy and we have to kind of steady everything. And so, you know, they force fed billions of dollars to banks that may not have necessarily needed them. And that gestated for a couple of years and manifested itself in more moral hazard to the tune of, you know, after Occupy Wall Street was all over and done with and the police removed their tents and shanty towns from uh from wall street and after everybody kind of forgot about that and of course you see all the movies and all the quotes where people say you know here's what'll happen uh you know everybody will be angry for a while and then everybody will forget about it right that's that's the stance from the banks and after that happens now you have a reinforced emboldened kind of wall street that really does believe more so that they're indestructible now than they did prior to the crisis. Because with every time you bail them out, you give them a little bit more positive reinforcement. So that moral hazard then turns into, you know, what we have now, which is essentially we implemented QE Infinity in 2020, which is manifesting now in ridiculous inflation and... We have things like you're just talking about. We have the government trading ahead of consequential decisions that they're making. Uh, People that are in charge of regulating companies like Facebook and Google are out there trading in the names before enforcement actions are being put out and things like that. Uh, Wall Street Journal did an article on that last week. You have the 
members of the Fed trading ahead of their consequential decisions. I mean, it doesn't really get more egregious than that. Yeah, I mean, Cl- if you, Clarita. If you, if Clarita, you don't, if you don't yeah, want to Clarita. ban... If you don't, sorry. Last thing, last thing I'm saying. If you don't want to ban members of Congress from trading, which really should be the case, you have right. to ban members of the Fed. The Fed right. has their hand on the button. They can, you know, they can make the market go up or down whenever they want. Those people cannot be trading in S and P futures. They're trading S and P futures, Larry. Oh, I know. It's it's absurd. And I, I read recently that Clarita you know, bought right in front of the, you know, the mm-hmm. uh, the enormous move in March of 2020 when, when Jay Powell came in and said, I'm, I'm Mario Draghi, whatever it takes. I mean, Clarita was buying S&P, you know, S&P, the S&P at that point in time. I mean, it was a no-brainer trade and just enormous corruption. I mean, I mean that's, that's not Janet- an index fund. You know, that's not a planned uh, recurring purchase in an index fund. You know, like I have an account that like recurringly purchases a certain amount of uh, you know, right. QQQ every day, right? That's not that. Right. That's no. I mean, that's that's market timing based on inside information. I mean, look, you got Janet Yellen getting seven million dollars in speaking fees from firms that she prior regulated. I mean, this is the way the game works, and it's very corrupt and it's very broken. Speaking and, fees. You know, the speaking fees come from the banks, who were right. force-fed the capital from the Fed, who was led right. by Janet Yellen. Just think about that. Right. That's exactly right. It's. Uh, it's an extremely broken system, um, and you know the. In my opinion, the only way we're going to take the system away from them is, and and, and it's going to happen because they're playing. They're making unforced errors. I mean, these people are stupid enough that they, you know, they don't know what they're doing. And the thing, the system is getting out of their control. And so, in my opinion, the system will unwind, and we will a better system will emerge. Um, we we will have we will go back to sound money because people will demand it. Um, and uh, sadly, though, the pain is going to be large in the process of, of teaching these people, you know, the error of their ways. Um, Federal Reserve but, Vice Chair Richard Clarita traded between one million and five million dollars out of a bond fund into stock funds one day before Jerome Powell issued a statement flagging possible policy action as the pandemic worsened his 2020 financial disclosure show. Clarita's trades described in forms filled, uh, filed with the Government Ethics Office show the shifting of the funds out of a PIMCO bond fund on February 27th, 2020, and on the same day buying the PIMCO Stocks Plus Fund and the iShares MSCI USA Minimal Volatility Factor Exchange Traded Fund in similar dollar ranges. So he moved you know, between $1 and $5 million out of bonds and into stocks a day before Powell signaled to the market. The following day on February 28th, a Friday, at two th- the following day, Larry, Powell took the unusual <laughs> Powell took the unusual step of releasing a statement saying the virus poses quote evolving risks to economic activity quote in the same statement Powell said the Fed was quote closely monitoring developments and their implications for the economic outlook end quote and that's from Bloomberg. Right. Yep, that pretty much says it all. Thank you for that site. I knew it had happened. I didn't know that in that level of detail. Yeah, it, um, you know, look, back to your question of how can we all defend ourselves? I mean, I think a couple things are important. One, people should avoid leverage. It's just dangerous. You just, you know, we've got a broken system. All, you know, the prices, nobody knows what the real price of anything is. The prices are all going to go haywire. Uh, two, you know, I think people should 
keep some cash just to be safe and you know i mean and i mean literally cash in case the atms start working three i think gold and silver coins will hold their value and protect you um and then you know after that you know to the degree that you're investing in you know yeah i mean i could make an argument for buying a short-term government bond at four percent i mean it is starting to look attractive but but i think in general i would have you know personally i'm not i'm not going to do that and uh you know, I think I think the much better choice would be to you know to be in gold stocks or to be in Bitcoin. Um, I think both of those are are going to perform extraordinarily well because what we're in is a period of monetary chaos, and you know, to me, you, you know, and, and what we're what we're seeing is that the governments are proving that they're incapable of managing our monetary systems. That's the big picture. It's a sovereign debt crisis, and so what you need, in my opinion, to own are assets that the governments don't print and don't control. And Bitcoin, gold, and silver are three assets that meet that test. Real estate does too. The only issue with real estate is that they can tax it and you can't really move it. It's not particularly liquid. But, you know, I think people, I mean, probably the worst thing you could do right now would be to buy a long bond. I mean, I think the, the notion of buying a 20 or a 30 year bond, that's just absurd. Um, there's no way you'll get paid back, you know, the value you put into them. Let me ask you about energy too, because there sure. are, there, there's a lot of energy names that are similar to miners, the which, by the yeah, way, yeah, sure. I, I think the miners, you know, look, I've, I'll own up to it. There's never been a time where I've said, I don't think miners are a good buy, <laughs> you know, like, right. and me too. It, you know, if and, you bought them by at the way, peak, we're down. We've been, yeah, we've been wrong. We've been wrong. Months. Exactly. Yes. And, and maybe right. we'll continue to be wrong, but that's not, I don't think, doesn't really I don't think change. So my thoughts right. on on it and it's a product of how i view the markets and how i see things i'm not running a fucking gold fund you know what i mean like i'm not trying to right. you know get get i have a gold sponsor jm bullion sponsors the podcast but they sponsor the podcast because of my outlook i'm not beholden to what they i'm not trying to sell their gold i don't give a fuck if you own gold or not you know i'm all i'm doing is offering up my opinion just like you but let me ask you about energy because energy feels a little bit like miners the ebitda multiples aren't as low in energy but mm. there are still a lot of energy names trading between five and ten times earnings you know spouting off tons of free cash with you know decent dividend yields um but it is also starting to feel like a little bit of a consensus trade to me mm. and and it may not be the case it may just be that you know they're a good value and people you know buffett's still buying right buffett's still buying mm -hmm. uh occidental petroleum and you got names like phillips 66 and stuff that that just seem like well priced even exxon at a hundred dollars you know i mean exxon is just crushing it you know is it a, is it a consensus trade yet do you think is it can, what, good and what can energy multiples go to can can a multiple on an exxon well, go to a 15 multiple is that possible Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, again, just, you know, take the underlying commodity price, $150 oil, absolutely, or $200 oil, which I think is in the cards at some point. Um, you know, look, it, yes, it's a little bit more consensus than gold. I mean, everyone's so down on the miners. The miners are deeper value, but perhaps there's more risk. Um, you know, the, the, um, the issue with energy, uh, as I see it, that I think gold doesn't suffer quite as much from, or the gold miners don't suffer quite as much from, is let's let's assume we have we have the massive deflationary outcome. Let's assume I mean we really kind of head back toward the Stone Age as things are failing, people are losing their jobs, etc. That will be a demand killer, and you know suddenly I mean and we know oil prices at the marginal barrel, right? And if you know people are losing their jobs, I mean you know envision a 1929 like outcome. 
could take a few years to develop, but envision that. I'm not sure. I, I think gold does better in that instance, and gold miners do better in that instance than the energy names. And that's why I'm, I'm more comfortable. Silver doesn't do particularly well, by the way. I mean, silver is, you know, silver is not a monetary metal as much as it's really an industrial metal. It's used in, you know, it, it, to me, and, I, and I'm more excited about silver, by the way, than I am about gold. I, I, I think that it's got a lot more upside. And that's because there's not really a big stockpile and it's getting used all the time. And it's essential in all kinds of electronics. And, you know, if we want to have solar, we've got to have silver, et cetera. So, um, you know, to me, to me, the, the big question is how much does the economy hold together? And that, you know, and I don't know the answer um, because what they've done is very, very big and extreme. And we've seen an enormous loss of wealth. Now, if, if that was just blowing off the bubbles on top of the beer and, you know, the economy kind of below it holds together okay, which is kind of what I think is going to happen, then the, then the outcome is probably an inflationary outcome where energy and gold do well and the economy doesn't. We don't get a 1929. You know, we get a, we get a typical recession where, you know, things slow down, we get an inflationary recession. Now, that's kind of my base case, Chris. But I think, you know, the, the, the two outlier cases are they print so much that everybody loses faith in the, faith in the currency, the stock market melts up, and we, we, we rapidly go to its really high inflation, I mean 15 20%, and, and we kind of get almost like a Weimar-type event. I would say, you know, the other base case, or the other outlier case on the downside is they keep this stuff tight, Things start breaking. Everything just gets continually worse. Employment comes and spreads. They maybe they pivot and they try to print. But it's too late. There's been too much damage, and we we kind of cascade. You know, just debts keep getting sold, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, I mean, it, it's kind of almost like a hyperinflationary depression. They'll, and and frankly, I could see this happening where prices are falling so fast, and people are getting out of bonds so fast that they you know they have to print to buy them. But the economy is also shutting down. And, you know, in that particular case, you know, where does the price of oil go? I, I don't really know. I mean, there'll be a lot less demand, but there'll be a lot more money chasing it. I mean, it's, you know, I feel like my crystal ball is completely broken. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, Brent Johnson gave a really great talk yesterday at the Gold Forum, which is basically like we are in an environment, folks, where you can't make the assumption that you know what's going to happen. Right. Because none of us, none of us have ever been here before, and there are too many goddamn variables. Right. There really are, and so, and there's a lot of volatility. So, what I would caution everybody to do is just, you know, stick to your knitting and be balanced. I mean, having some energy, sure. Having some cash, sure. Having some, you know, and, and you know, having some speculative things based on an inflationary melt up, melt up like gold stocks and Bitcoin, sure. But don't bet the farm on anything in any one area, because we don't know what's going to happen. You know, how do you price Bitcoin? Okay, that's a great question. So, um, here's the thing: it's here's the most unique thing about Bitcoin, Chris. There are there will only be 21 million coins. Yeah, I know. I know, I know, Larry. Right. Everybody okay. knows. Everybody knows. Okay, fine, fair enough. So, think about it this way: it's a commodity. It's, that's the SEC's called it a commodity. Okay, mm -hmm. it's a commodity, but it's a commodity that does not respond to price pressure. So. It, you know, we're, there are only going to be so many of them. So it's a deflationary commodity in a sense. There will only be so many. Here's here's the way I keep it really simple. Is demand growing? Are dogs eating food? Are more people using it to make payments, remittances, store money, whatever it might be? Are more people using it? Answer to that question, yes. I can show you five charts, all kinds of different statistics. Okay. Is the supply fixed? Yes. 
what has to happen to the price? Fixed supply, more people using it, it has to go up. How much? I have no idea, okay? I mean, I have some personal yeah, opinions. Yeah, but can't, 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 demand, can't the demand side of that equation be influenced heavily by governments? Can't demand... Absolutely. Can it fall Absolutely. out of favor? I mean, what's... What's the floor? I, What's the foundation? What's you know? Well, the, yeah, the the floor on the floor is the cost of mining and the hash rate, um, and you know, and that depends on electricity prices. But you know, there there are very few people who are mining Bitcoin at less than five thousand dollars a coin. Okay, so so there's a, there's kind of a natural floor, like you know, miners will shut down. And, um, you know, and of course, there's a difficulty. I mean, there's a lot of com- there's a lot of complexity here. But look, the, the floor is obviously I mean, in, in some sense, the floor is zero. If everyone if everyone decides they don't want it. Yeah, of course okay? it's zero. Yeah, right. But but here's the point. You've got a growing mass of people who want it. And so what I watch is I watch the adoption rate. And as long as the adoption rate is growing. The argument, the argument is sound, and I and, and for adoption rate, let's go a level further. I watch use cases. What are people using it for? One of the great use cases, no one's really focusing on this, but one of the great use cases these days is remittances overseas. You live in Guatemala. You're poor. You send one of your relatives to Texas to be a domestic. They work their ass off. They make a couple hundred dollars a month. They want to send it back to help their folks. They go to the Western Union, and between the Western Union and the bodega, that you're getting the money out of, they managed to rip you off for between 20 and 30% of what your relative earned, right? Okay, now, it's it's a new world. You've got a couple hundred dollar Android phone. You live in Guatemala. You actually have cell network because, you know, they jumped all over, they, they, they skipped the landline, okay? You've got your relative in Texas, and you've got a, a Mun wallet. They've got a Mun wallet. They basically send you $200 for less than a penny, okay? That's a legitimate use case. And it's happening, and more and more people are doing that. In Africa, in Nigeria, 20% of the people are transacting in Bitcoin. I mean, they're skipping the traditional bank network. I mean, and, and that kind of thing. And, that, and that's just one. I mean, there are, there are tons of others. And so my, my point is the stuff has utility. And, and all this is, by the way, this is all based on the Lightning Network. Before the Lightning Network came along, the, the criticism that Bitcoin was too slow and too expensive for everyday trading is absolutely true did not work okay it was just a store of value way of working but lightning changes the entire game it also by the way chris and you'll like this it makes it's very it's impossible to track lightning because they open and close channels very quickly and so it makes it completely anonymous so going to your question about well can't the government screw it up well okay a couple things one we've got senators and congressmen who are in favor two gary gensler who runs the sec has said it's a commodity and so my sense is They've admitted that it exists. They, they, there was a time when they could have killed it. It was five or ten years ago, but it's too late. It's out of the. It's, it, the horse is out of the barn now. You know, here's something I fear, and I talked about this yesterday at the Gold Forum. I fear going forward that at some point the fiat world is going to say, "Hey, these Bitcoin and gold people, you know, they're drinking our milkshake. Right. We got a problem, right. and we're, you know, we we are going to make it. We're going to tax them at ninety percent. We're going to make it illegal yeah. to hold this shit. You know." They're going to really come hard after I'm us. I'm sure that's going to happen. I'm certain uh, that that's going to happen. I think they'll. I think they will. I think the state will take over gold miners at some point too. I, I it's, Chris, I think it's all a risk. Although if they did, at least based on the takings laws, I understand that they at least have to pay you the cash value of the stock at the time they took them over. But, but having said all of that, 
Um, yeah, and at that point in time, I think at that point in time, the Civil War starts. And, you know, one has to decide what one wants to do. I mean, look, you know, they may come and say, give me your coins. Well, you know, I had a boating accident. I mean, in, in, the, in the case of Bitcoin, you know, they may say, how many Bitcoin do you have? It would not surprise me at all if the state said, you've got to report how many Bitcoin you've got. You've got to report the addresses. of. I mean, they already make you check a box on your tax return if you have crypto, right? Yeah. So having said all of that, you know, and I'm not going to comment on what I'm going to do, but I think there are people who have 12 words and, you know, 12 words is what you need to do a BIP39 wallet who are going to view it as a, okay, government, you know, I got one. It's right here. And, and, you know, whether they're telling the truth about everything they own or not, who knows, but it, it gets kind of hard to censor, Chris. I mean, and, and, and by the way, you know, if, and when that happens, is that government, you know, behaving in a lawful manner in your view or in my view? I mean, so I, I think, you know, um, my opinion. Is, <laughs> we'll just remind the government that they're not acting in a lawful manner. That should back them. Well, up. I, I, yeah, I, 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 I get it, Chris. I, get I know, but you're it. making no, a good point. You're making a good point. But, but, but do you know? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, you know, there are other countries to live in. There are other ways to live. I mean, I think, you know, look, this this is for all the marbles. I yeah, mean, it is. You know, it really is. I mean, the fiat world is very worried, and they've got a lot of privilege, and they've got a lot to protect. And I'm not naive. I mean, they took away a ton of my money when they outlawed short selling in September of 2008. I mean, I was short. I had Michael Burry's trade on. I didn't know what a CDS was. But I had Michael Burry's trade on in, in size, in, you know, Ambac and Fannie and Freddie and all those names. I had to cover them all within, you know, like a one-week period. I lost. I was up 50% for the year. I lost the whole game. Ended up the year down 6%. That's sick. So it's sick, right? Just because they changed the rules. I mean, well, but this is what they do. I mean, look at what they did to the guy in nickel. Remember? I mean, they, you know, they, they, they changed the rules on the Elmi changed the rules for the nickel traders, right? And those guys, those guys had them dead to rights. And they, you know, they, they wouldn't let them cash in. You know, and they did it with GameStop. I mean, look, this is what these corrupt governments do. And so we all have to decide how are we going to play this game, knowing that we're, we're up against a corrupt government. And it's not going to be easy. But it's not entirely difficult either if you educate yourself and learn. I mean, buying gold coins is not impossible, although... It was interesting. I checked this morning on Texas Precious. I mean, all the every coin dealer I've checked recently has been out of stock. I mean, you can't find coins right now. Yeah. I mean, we. My, I, I had a my, guy. My I local a, guy. He's not out of stock, but he says that physical demand is very different from what paper demand appears. And and right. and, and everybody, you know, look, all my friends. Like you talk to a guy like Andy Sheckman, I mean, he'll tell you the same thing. Okay, you want to say he's talking his book? Fine. I mean, I go and I walk into a into a coin store here in Philadelphia, where you know I know the owner. I know he's he doesn't give a fuck about my blog or my investments right. or anything like that. I just ask him, you know, like what's it like, you know? And he tells me, you know, and I believe yeah. him. He's not fucking lying. He's not making it up. He's never solicited me for a sale or anything. Like he's just talking to me. I, I spoke to a I spoke to a guy who was dealing in silver about a week ago, and he told me when the BOE event occurred, which is really a big deal, right? He told me when, when that occurred, he saw his demand go up 10x. Right, that's crazy. 10x. That's crazy. I mean, so you know, look, people are sniffing this thing out, Chris. I mean, we are in a sovereign debt crisis. We are in a currency crisis, and you know, I, I'm not suggesting anyone should take all of their money and dump it into these things. But what I am suggesting is very strongly that anybody who doesn't have some position in these things is taking more risk than they need to take because of the upside optionality. 
I mean, Bitcoin could go to zero, but I personally think Bitcoin's going to go up 100x. So, you know, I mean, if you take 1% of your net from worth... From here, so and you, you, think, you think Bitcoin will go to 2 million? Yeah, easily, easily. What so time frame? If you um, five years, five, six years. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You got to look at the math. It's. I'm not kidding you. I mean, you know, so if you take one percent. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but what is yeah. what does the best case look like for adoption? Like what needs to happen with adoption for that to occur? Government-wise, retail-wise, whatever. Well, it just, it just kind of needs to continue as it's continuing, um, which is kind of 20 or 30 percent growth a year. And then what, what seems to happen is you have these, you know, you know what is it? The, what do they call them? Gamma squeezes, the thing that yeah. t- shoved Tesla up. The same kind of thing seems to happen in Bitcoin. There's kind of a, there's a, you know, there are all these futures markets and all these options writers and everything, and all these guys get way out over their skis. We're, so if you look at Bitcoin, look, the you asked how to value Bitcoin. I don't know. The answer is it's obviously at the margin of supply and demand. But if you look at, the only thing I know when I, when I try to price any security, I, I immediately do a, a since inception price chart, and, and I kind of, and I look for a pattern. And I ask myself, is that pattern likely to compete or, or repeat, right? And so the way Bitcoin has ten, tended to trade is it kind of it, it goes up in an enormous quick spurt, like a like right. a bamboo shoot, and then it loses sixty or seventy percent of its value. Okay, but the the base of, after, after the spurt is higher than the last base was, right? I mean, the last base we're at a, we're at a twenty thousand dollar base right now. Last base was at five, right? Okay, so and we're we're coming down, and we're gonna you know we're building and building and building at twenty. At some point, enough people are gonna get offsite, and we're gonna go on the next spurt. In my opinion, the next spurt takes us to one hundred and fifty to two hundred. And by the way, then it'll go down seventy percent. Right, and we'll come back to forty. Do you, do you know what I mean? I mean that. that yeah, no, and I, th- I think I think you're a hundred percent right. I mean, I've seen the chart, and I know exactly the pattern that you're talking about. And like you know, right. it had a seventy percent drawdown in 2018. It had a seventy percent drawdown in 2021. It had another seventy percent drawdown now. And, you know, and and then every time it goes on to eclipse new highs, and with fixed supply. You know, you could make the argument that this is normal volatility for well, this asset. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy volatility. Even it, it doesn't feel nuts. normal, yeah. right? But right, but 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 look, if you know, my view is if you put one percent of your net worth in it, you know, or two percent or some small number in it, if you lost it, your life doesn't change. But if it goes up ten to a hundred x, that's going to be a meaningful impact on your portfolio. Right. You know, and 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 I think if you know, the further you get into it, the more you really understand what it is. I mean, I'll tell you, when I first got into it, my great concern was this thing's a computer and it can blow up. You know, I just, I just couldn't, <laughs> right? I mean, well, you know, I had a lot of, IB, I mean, I was around when, you know, the, the first IBM PC came up. I mean, I had blue screens as long as I was around, right? right. You know, <laughs> this just is like, a computer and it can blow up. Right? Well, seriously, though. I mean, wh- who hasn't had their computer fail? And, right. and by the way, there's, there's no reboot button. Oh, well, you know, have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again? Right. right. <laughs> you know? And I'm thinking, well, how does that apply to Bitcoin? Are we just going to turn it off and turn it on again? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it took me a long time to get through that piece and to talk to enough computer guys and to understand what the blockchain really is, which is a cumulative record. Right. And, and, and to understand how, yes, any one computer in the network can blow up, but guess what? They're 25,000 nodes out there keeping track right and every 10 minutes a new one gets validated so you know i you know we've now got what 14 15 years almost of, of history so i don't think it's gonna blow up i actually am kind of over that fear you know um I, I worry what the government could do and 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 if i ever saw people not using it more i'd become concerned i mean you know but but i don't that's not what i see even i mean look it, the price is down we just had an enormous correction 
And even in that, we're seeing growth in all the usage metrics. They're all going up. So, you know, maybe I'll orange pill you yet, Chris. <laughs> there is a case that, right. and, and I said this on Palisades Gold Radio like six months ago when I was talking about how crypto needed to basically have an Armageddon, which I still don't think has happened, but I think is in the process of happening. I think we're still yes. going to see more failures. But um, with Celsius imploding, with the questions looming about Tether, with all of yep. these altcoins going to zero, it is possible for that to just literally be, you know, the malinvestment in the space being wiped out and Bitcoin will persist. That is a possibility. You know, that doesn't that, just because Celsius blows up doesn't mean Bitcoin's going to do. I mean, Celsius yeah, no, was taking yeah, inordinate risks and, you know, was essentially right. a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Um, those are it's, those are all really apples and oranges. I mean, the thing you got to understand: Bitcoin's a technological development. Those things were all just shit coins and promotes. And right. you're right, though, that if, if if Tether blows up and some more of those blow up, I mean, I have a downside case on Bitcoin. I think there's some possibility we'll see fourteen thousand. I, I, you know, not not highly likely, but possible. And, and you know, and if we do, I'm going to back up the truck. You know, but you but think, in turn, you think I, it's possible that say that again. Well, I think it's possible that we'll see fourteen thousand dollars a coin. On a, oh, if yeah. we have another if we have another March twenty event and the correlation of everything goes to zero and everybody has to sell everything, Bitcoin I don't think it goes below fourteen. That's kind of seventy eight percent. What if what if Tether trace. goes? Same same that could do it. That could definitely do it. I'd be I would and buy it, Bitcoin if Tether blew up. It, yeah, any any of any of those things could do it. I'm not saying they will happen, but they could. Yeah. I mean, my advice has always been to dollar cost average. I mean, I use Swan. They're great. They're the best. I mean, they're going to become the E-Trade for Bitcoin, in my opinion, the Swan Bitcoin. And, you know, I just I buy some every week. Doesn't matter what the price is. I have a set amount. They take the money out of my bank account. Yeah. Simple. Service is great. I mean, I, you know, and that's what I think everybody should be doing. I think everybody should be saving some of their money in Bitcoin because this is a technique. The, the other thing that helps me to understand it, Chris, I think, and, and, and why I feel so strong about it, I was in the Internet back in the day, and this reminds me so much of the Internet. You know, I mean, Krugman saying it's a fax machine. and I mean, it's just, you know, there's so much skepticism, but God damn, the thing's working, you know, and the dogs are eating the food. Yeah. And it's like, I, I kind of feel like eventually everybody's going to own some Bitcoin. I mean, they don't know it yet, but they're going to. Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. You know, and yeah. That, so that would that would prove me wrong. And I have you know a small small amount of Bitcoin. You know, well, there you go. But that's not, all you not, need. Not so small that you know a hundred X wouldn't be impactful. <laughs> well, know? that's the point. Over that, five therein, years. therein therein lies the point, right? right? Right. Therein lies the point. I mean, you know, I know because we, you know, I read all your stuff. I mean, we share investment views and investment values and. The way one makes money in investing, in my opinion, is asymmetry, right? Right. I mean, we can all be wrong. We are wrong. And that's the hard part about investing. Sometimes you think something's for sure and it doesn't. You lose it. It sucks. But if you can only lose 1x and you can make 2 to 10x and you can, you know, and in general, you're not wrong every single time. I mean, you're not like a, you're not Jim Cramer, right? Right. <laughs> you know, it, it's going to work out for you, right? You, you know, you find good asymmetric situations and you, and you, you buy them and you wait. Yeah. So. Awesome. All right. Well, Larry, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Chris. We've got to do this more on. often. I, I really love talking to you. I can't believe that we hadn't talked since April. I think we got all the important stuff out of the way, although maybe we talk again in a couple of weeks because I want to talk about other things like COVID and civil liberties and uh, things, that, th- things that we didn't discuss. But I did want to get this financial stuff out of the way. Um, but let's stay happy in touch. To do it, and I'm happy yeah, to, absolutely, uh, you'll, you'll be putting out your letter uh, soon. Yeah, right? the letter should be out any day now. And, and um, 
also on Twitter, you know, the presentation I kept referencing, it's on Twitter. So you can just, you can go there and you'll see Excellent. It. Yeah. And I will, uh, okay. I'll publish your letter on my blog as well. If that's, uh, okay. Right. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. No, that'd be great. Thanks okay. Chris. All right. Okay, Larry, take care. Talk Let's to see. you soon. That was, well, there he is still going, going gone. <laughs> my buddy, Larry Lepard, good friend of mine of the EMA, uh, whatever the hell this thing's called. Where is it? EMA Garp Fund, a Boston-based investment management firm. How about that? <laughs> His shit is in the podcast description. Thank you so much for joining us. I can't believe I haven't talked to him since April. Man, a lot has changed since then. Hopefully, we can get him back on before the end of the year this year. Please give a shout. Show some love to the people that support the podcast. Masterworks, Jam, Bullion, Sang, Lucci, George Gammon, Doomberg, and my kind friends over at Market Rebellion. Those links are in my podcast description. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, check out my blog, Fringe Finance. It is uh, in the podcast description. would love to have you as a subscriber. All right, fools. I am out. Peace.